Hi everyone, uh, my name is Austin Hill and I am from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and I wanted to make this video and kind of share my testimony of some of the reasons behind why I left the church that I was born and raised in. So the title of this video will be called Why I Left Lestadianism, Apostolic Lutheranism, and the First Apostolic Lutheran Church specifically, because that was the specific church of the apostolics that I grew up in. And so jumping right into it, the things that I'm going to talk about will be, you know, why I made this, the gospel, and my testimony, why I left, some false teachings from the Apostolic Lutheran Church, um, that also that are also in Lestadius churches uh, and other like OALC, Old Apostolic, or just Apostolic Lutheran churches in general. And then I'm going to continue to talk about my testimony. And then I'm going to jump to why I left the Baptist church after joining that. And then some false doctrines of the Baptist church and God's final message of mercy to, um, to the world is to come out of Babylon. And I'll get into that a little bit later. So first of all, why did I? Why am I making this video? What's my motivation? What's my uh, reasoning behind making a video like this? The first thing is love. I care and I love the people that I grew up with. Um, I wouldn't be making this video if I didn't care about them and if I didn't love them. The point is so they understand and they know that the things that are within the congregation, the things that they're being taught, the things that they're being, the things that they're believing, they're not according to the Bible. And I just want to bring to light some of the things, um, uh, you know, what the Bible points out. And I just want to, as lovingly as possible, you know, tell them about these things because I care about them. Um, and for encouragement, this is also to grow you in your faith and to grow you in the scriptures and to hopefully help you to, um, you know, grow in your relationship with Christ and to, um, you know, grow more in understanding and grow more in, in knowledge and this is this video as much has been a help for me as it has been hopefully it will be for you and um and yeah like i said before this video is to you know reprove the darkness reprove and to correct those things that are error ephesians 5 ephesians five eleven says and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather reprove them and reprove just means to like to bring to light is to and to correct and to make known that something is wrong. Um, but please, I am just a man, just like you are. You know, if you're a man or a woman watching, I am fallible. You know, I'm not. I'm not this. I'm not God, right? Don't trust explicitly in what I say. You know, go to the scriptures of what I'm bringing up. Search the scriptures. Go to the Bible alone and let the Bible be your authority. Let the Bible be your the truth for everything for let everything be set upon the rock the foundation which is in christ and jesus is the word made flesh so please don't trust in me as a person trust in what god's word says and open it and read it and study it and second timothy chapter 3 verses 15 and 16 says and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in christ jesus all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so just a cool verse saying basically the word of God is can be used and is used and is 
We can use it for every answer, every decision, every for correction, for doctrine, for understanding, for instruction, righteousness, for salvation, for that we, you know, that we can be perfect in Christ, that we can be furnished into, you know, with all good works. And we can use all of the scripture, not just portions or not just cherry picking or not just our favorite ones, you know, which it's okay to have favorite scripture, but to use the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you know, to see what God is saying so we can learn to see, so we can understand what God has said in his word. And I also want to note that not, you know, every single person, not every single person believes the exact same way. There's going to be minimal differences from person to person because, you know, everybody's an individual. God looks at individual hearts, right? And Amos 3, 3 says, can two walk together except they, except they be agreed? Meaning, if, however, if these people are attending the same church, they're attending the same fellowship, they're in communion with each other, they as a whole believe the same things. They are going to be fellowshipping because they agree that what they're believing, what they're being taught, what they're seeing is they believe in. You know, they believe with their whole heart that what they're hearing, what they're believing um, is true. And so while, again, while each individual may have some minor, small understandings, you know, different understandings or individual, uh, you know, how they, how they view things is going to be a touch different, but as a whole, they believe the same thing as a whole, because they're in communion with each other, because they go to the same churches and congregations, they believe in the same things. And I just have a request is please, you know, just be open to the Bible and just, um, you know, op- just be open to what the Bible is saying, not what I'm saying, but let, again, let the Word of God be your final authority on all things. And that's the important thing, is just be open to the Scriptures. That's all I ask, is just open, be open to the Word of God. And, and, and examine my motive, you know, I'm not, I'm not making this to uh, cast someone under the bus, that's not the point. If, if the point of me was making the, if the point of me making this video was to point fingers and to um, cast individuals under the bus and to say, oh, what, whatever, um, you know, if, if the point was to not point someone in the right direction, to point somewhere after Christ, then it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be helpful for me to make this video. Instead, I'm making this video to reprove those things that are wrong so that people may see what is the right way and so that they may be able to walk in the right way. And so that's the reason why I'm making this. So jumping right in, um, first of all, there is bad news, and this is what I mean. Just like a dentist drills to find the decay in a tooth, so um, by going through a few things, uh, I'm going to see, you know, we're going to look for moral decay for whoever's watching this video. We're going to go through the, the Ten Commandments, just a few of them, not all of them, and just examine yourself and just be honest before God, just be honest and let your conscience be honest before God and ask yourself in your heart if, you know, if you've done these things, just look at yourself. You know, you don't have to, nobody knows, you're just watching this. Just examine yourself according to the Ten Commandments and according to these questions. Um, so diving right into it, how many lies have you told, even if they're called white lies? And have you ever stolen something, even if it's small, like a pencil, paperclip, piece of gum, a dollar out of somebody's wallet? If so, if you've done one or the other, you'd be a thief or you'd be a liar, or you'd be a thief and a liar. And these go against God's commandments when he says, thou shalt not um, steal, 
or thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not bear false witness, right? And have you ever taken God's name in vain and said, you know, OMG or use God's name in an improper way as like a cuss word or um, saying his name in a way that doesn't glorify him? Um, this would be called blasphemy because when you take God's name in vain, you're taking the, the name of the God who gave you life and you're disrespecting it and you're putting it down and you're saying, you're treating it as a filth word. You're, you're saying that it's, it's worth nothing to you. And that's why it's um, called blasphemy is because you're blaspheming God by not using his name in a proper light. And um, going on, have you ever looked upon lust? Have you ever looked with lust upon a woman? Or if you're a woman, upon a man? Jesus said that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And that's from Matthew 5, 28. The next question would be, have you looked at porn or lusted after another person? Um, adultery happens in the heart before the physical act of adultery is committed. Jesus looks at the heart. He sees our intentions. You know, I can't see your intentions or another person can't see your heart like God can, but Jesus sees the intention. And if so, you'd be an adulterer. I know I was guilty of this and um, lusting after uh, another lady. That's That was my carnal heart is I lusted. I had those sensual desires within me that I naturally lusted after women. So I know I myself have been guilty of these. And the next question, have you rested and ceased from all labor and kept the seventh day Sabbath, which is Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, sundown, holy and unto the Lord? Or have you done your own pleasure on his seventh day Sabbath? Or do you work upon that day? Do you work on Saturday? If so, you would be a Sabbath breaker. Or have you ever hated someone? 1 John 3.15 says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And yes, even if you hate someone within your heart, if you hate someone in your mind, God says that you're a murderer because, again, he sees the heart. He sees that the intention in the heart, if you hate someone, is just like murdering them physically. And now, we only went through six of the Ten Commandments. And just like I, myself, have broken one and all of these, so have you broken these commandments. And even if you broke one, say you kept all nine of them, you kept everyone perfect, but yet you broke one, you're still guilty of breaking all of them. Because James 2.10 says that whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Every commandment is intertwined, it's interconnected. It's everything. It's like a chain of connection because the first four commandments show our love to God and the last six commandments show our love to our neighbor. So they're all intertwined. So if you break one, you break them all. Now, if you, if you don't lie, you know, if you don't lie, if you don't steal, but you break the seventh-day Sabbath, you're still breaking God's law. The law is not just literal, like I said earlier. It's literal and physical, it's spiritual. God looks upon our hearts to see that moral corruption. Just like the dentist, like I said earlier, they drill and they, they drill in the tooth while it hurts. You know, you're examining yourself, you're looking at yourself inwardly to see if you've broken God's law, which we all have. And the dentist will drill and drill and it's kind of hurts and it's painful. But then once they get that, they find the decay and they get rid of it, they fill it with, you know, they fill the cavity. And that's kind of in the same way, just like examining ourselves and seeing, okay, yes, I am a sinner. I have broken God's law. And I'm sure people have heard of sin before, right? 
a lot of people say something is sinful. They know what's, or, you know, oh, that's sin, or it's sinful to do this, or sin in general. But where does that come from? The Bible says to break God's law is called sin. And 1 John 3, 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And Romans 7.11 says, when Paul's speaking, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Like I said, we have all sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Of the glory of God. All of us, each and every single individual upon this earth, upon this planet, has fallen short of God's glory, has sinned. Romans 3.12 says, There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is not one person upon this earth that has not fallen short of God's glory. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, speaking of Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And because we have sinned, because we have fallen short and broken God's law, there is a penalty for our sin, which is called wages. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The only reason that death exists in our world is because of sin. Death Death is not even supposed to be here. God created Adam and Eve. He created them perfect. He created them to live life for eternity. The reason why death exists is because sin entered the world. That's the only reason why each, every single one of us will die, is because it is a result of sin. If sin never happened in the beginning, we would, eternal life would be, life, true life is eternal. This isn't life. This is a test. This is a how we spend our life upon this earth determines how we spend eternity. And true life is eternal. This isn't true life. And because we've sinned, because we've broken God's law and come short of the glory of God, we have separated ourselves from our Creator, from our God, because He is holy, He is perfect, and He is, He can't dwell in the presence of sin. He's perfect, and we are not. And therefore, it separates us from God because he can't look upon sin. That's why there's separation. That's why the gospel exists, because initially we sinned. It separates us from God. The gospel is God bringing back that connection between God and man. And when we look upon the law of God, it's a mirror. It shows us and it reveals to us, like we just did, we went through the Ten Commandments. It reveals to us where we have fallen short where we have sinned, where we need help, where we need, um, where we need to show that reflection. That's why it's a cool analogy of the, the law of God being a mirror. The law of God shows us where we're dirty. Like you go outside, you get dirty in the mud, you're playing in the mud. You go inside to a mirror, and the mirror shows you that you're full of dirt, just like the commandments. They show you where you're filthy. They show you where you're, sin- you're sinful. They show you where you're sinning and you're breaking God's law. However, the law of God in itself cannot clean or cleanse you. The law of God is specifically there to point, to point you to Jesus, to say that, hey, you've broken God's law. 
you, it's being revealed to you that you have fallen short, but it points you to the, to the Savior, which is Christ. It cannot clean you, cannot cleanse you, but it's there as a mirror. And if you are in that sin, breaking God's law, and you die, God would give you the just punishment, the just wages of sin, which is death. You would die because you have sinned and broken his law. If that's before and if, in your, if you're in sin and you die, the death that you deserve. However, this is the good news. That Jesus, because we have broken God's law, he paid that fine for us. For you and for me, for anybody who would believe on him. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose on the third day from the grave. I'm sure many people have heard of that, but maybe they don't understand or they don't understand why he came, why he had to die on the cross for our, for me and for you, is because we had a wage that needed to be paid. And Jesus specifically came down from heaven to pay that wage for us. God the Father sent his son Jesus to die in our place, in our stead. He took our place so we wouldn't receive the just punishment that was due, the just wages, the just fine that was due to our behalf. Romans 6.23, finishing that verse that I read earlier, says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that the wages of sin is death, yes, but it says, but the gift of God is is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So whoever, it says whosoever, race, tribe, tongue, nation, Culture, whosoever believeth on Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. But what must we do to be saved and have eternal life? We're full of sin, we're full of fear, we're full of regret, we're full of sorrow and shame. We have to come to Christ as we are, filled with iniquity, filled with fears and regrets and all these things from our past and hurts and, and bitterness and sorrow and shame and all these things. And we have to come to Christ as we are and accept God's mercy and accept his grace. We have to accept that he has mercy and grace for us specifically. And we have to realize that he died specifically as in, for each one of us individually, for the whole world. But that means for us as individuals. We need to realize that we're a sinner, that we have fallen short. We need to accept God's mercy and his God, in God's grace and repent of our sins. And then receive the free gift that comes from God in Christ Jesus. Repentance is not saying you're sorry and continuing in sin. It's not saying, oh, God, I'm sorry that I um, did this specific thing. I broke, you know, I'm sorry that I lied. I'm sorry that I cheated or, or stole or what have you, whatever it may be. Repentance is, yes, realizing you're sorry, but turning from that sin and no longer committing it. That we need God's help to overcome sin so we, we, we stop from that sin. We overcome it through Christ. And so when we accept Christ and when we realize that we need him because he is the remedy for our soul, 
we receive the free gift of God, and it's free. We don't have to pay for it. We don't have to do um, good works to earn it. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to, you know, go to the temple like they did, you know, even in the Old Testament. We don't have to um, walk the stairs upon our knees. We don't, you know, we don't have to do something bad to ourselves in order to receive Christ as a free gift. We have to just receive him as he, as, as he is, and it's free. It's completely free. And faith is not just a belief. And if this were the case, that even Satan and the fallen angels, Satan and the demons would enter heaven if faith is just simply a belief. James 2.19 says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Satan and his demons know that Jesus exists. They were there in heaven before they fell. Of course they know that Jesus exists. Of course they know that God the Father exists. Of course they know that God the Holy Spirit exists. But they do not, they're, but they're definitely not going to heaven. Faith is more than simply just believing in Jesus and believing he exists. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Again, salvation is a free gift by grace through faith. By faith alone is the Christian justified. And God, once you do this, God will give you a new heart. He'll put a new heart within you. And he will write his law upon your heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And Hebrews chapter 10 um, is the fulfillment of this in the New Testament. Hebrews 10, 16 and 17 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. God will wash away your sins. He'll clean your slate. He'll completely wash you clean through his blood. And that's what happens when we come to Jesus, when we, um, you know, confess and we repent and we trust in Jesus. He completely cleans our slate and brings new life. And now, going on to my testimony, I'm just going to get a drink of water here. Um, growing up, growing up, I had an amazing childhood. It was so, it was blessed. I had great friends, cousins, great memories, and overall, I, rem I re remember my um upbringing and my childhood being just amazing. You know, we did, we were always playing outside, or we were always, you know, always had cousins or family, or, you know, visiting someone, or um, whatever it was, even after church, going over to friends' houses, or, um, just doing things all the time. There's always something to be doing, and it was really enjoyable. I had a really great childhood. I'm very thankful, and God blessed me with an amazing, loving father and mother, and I was protected from so much growing up. Now realizing, looking back, that hindsight that you look and you realize, wow, sometimes when you're young, you realize you get upset at your parents, like, why aren't you, why aren't you allowing me to do this? Why can't I do this? Why can't I go with my friends and do this? Why can't it? you know, a bunch of why can't I, or how come I'm not allowed to, right? 
in our in our ignorance in in our youth we don't see from our mom from our mom and dad's pers- perspective of why they were doing those things because they loved us because truly they loved us and they could see what was best for us but at the time we couldn't just like sometimes that happens um you know in faith our father in heaven sees the best route he needs for us to take but we can't we don't have lenses we're looking through a glass darkly as the scripture says we're looking through things with a foggy lens and sometimes we see, we look at something and we're like god father why 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 i don't understand why this is happening or whether it's a trial or whether it's something happening or something that you didn't you didn't want to go in that direction why is this happening how come it can't be like this well it's kind of the same analogy with our mother and father growing up god sees what's best for us just what our parents see what's best for us and they're protecting us you know we didn't have we didn't have tv or video games or um hollywood movies or xboxes or playstations or um i just remember going over to a friend's house and they had a and if they had a playstation i was there glued to the playstation or the xbox because we didn't have it growing up so i would just play and i would bug my friends i'm like come on let's go play the xbox because i wasn't used to it and when finally got open like it was when i went over to friend's house they had it and it was like whoa this big thing of like um you know now i can play this and but looking back i'm so thankful so so thankful that i was didn't have those things growing up and i was protected from all the uh nasty things that come from them and growing up so going further in my childhood in high school i always i went to church like i said i went to church every sunday and going through high school i always knew i believed in jesus i never doubted in jesus i never doubted you know i never doubted him i always believed in him but that's where it stopped. I went to church every Sunday, our family went to church every Sunday, and even when we were away from church, we would listen on the phone over the conference line if we were out of town or what whatever. You know, we would tune in every Sunday to make sure we heard the sermon and listen to the minister speak. And I did believe, but I did not have the actions to back that belief up. I didn't have um I didn't have I wasn't born again. I didn't have the actions to back that belief up. Um, just as a whole, you know. And if somebody would have asked me if I was a Christian, I honestly don't know what I would have said. I probably would have said yes, I'm a Christian, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't have. That's probably all I would have known how to said, right? I I wouldn't know how to expound on that. God says to give a reason, you know, when somebody asks you to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Uh, to always be ready to give a reason. That's paraphrasing a bit, but we have to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is with, within us. Always be ready to share your faith. Always be ready to give an answer for what you believe in. Um, but at the time, I wouldn't have been able to do that. And the reason why I, what drew me to God, what drew me to the Savior of the world was uh, trials and hardships. These things that came into my life that drew me to God. And if I never would have had these, I don't think, if life is dandy and, you know, it's fine. There's no up and downs or there's no... Um, storms in life there's no things that are challenging if you would just think everything's fine you don't need to turn to you know you don't need to turn to god you're fine you know everything's nothing's hard nothing's rough nothing's you don't need help with anything everything's fine so when i went through these trials like uh whether it was there's many things um and i'll explain those a bit later 
but it, it revealed to me that I was just going to the motions of life. I wasn't understanding. I wasn't, I was just going to church every Sunday. I was just going to the motions. I was going to school and I was trying to fit in and do all these things. Even in church, I was trying to fit in and I wasn't trying to be the odd guy out, but I felt like I was the odd person out for some reason. And I always tried to like be friends with people. I did have a great group of friends growing up. Um, you know, I did. I was very close, of course. Best friends growing up were the first apostolic, were part of the first apostolic Lutheran church, of course. And I, you know, I still, I love them dearly. And I still talk with them, text them, whatever. And, um, and I just remember going through the motions of I was always trying to fit in with someone and I was always trying to, you know, stick to the status quo. And I was always trying to do what was right according to other people and please people and how they wanted to see me and how I wanted to look to them through that lens and you kind of get shaped and molded through this from yeah public school as well but also in the church too also in the first episode Lutheran church because everybody has this image or they have this certain groups that you need to fit into and it was just very strange how I was going through those things and I was kind of confused and trying to understand why those things were so um but you know while I was going through these trials while I was going through these these going to church every Sunday you know, the hardships at home, you know, whether it was fighting or sickness that, you know, my mom had or, you know, our family seemed perfect on the outside, but inside, you know, we were struggling. We were, there's things that we were dealing with that, that was hard and that we couldn't, we weren't, you know, we were pretty private. We didn't, you know, proclaim our issues, you know, but, you know, and myself dealing with depression and fear and sin and anxiety and just overall, um, feeling like dead inside, just feeling numb, just feeling like I didn't have anywhere to go or any, or knowing what to do or where to go. Or, you know, I, I was close with my friends, but not close enough to express the feelings of what I was going with deep in my heart, like what I actually was going through. And, um, you know, when I was with my friends, it seemed like, yeah, you know, you're having fun, you're doing all these things. It seems to go away for a bit, but it comes right back when you're alone and when you're thinking about things of, um, you know, that's why I think so many people, they stay busy. They're just busy, 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 where it's visiting people or where it's talking, just talking to talk. There's no depth behind the conversation. It's just busyness. And that busyness, it distracts you from the, the work, the heart work that needs to be done and the, the things in the heart that need to be um, work through and the things of the heart that need to be brought up and that need to be confronted, confronted through, you know, through the scriptures and through God helping us with those things. And there's just so much busyness and you need to, you know, look at those things from the, the lens of the Bible. Okay. Rather than keeping ourselves busy, you know, why are we getting kept busy? And it's just going through the motions and doing all these things. And yeah, while at the same time being in bed for days on end, depressed, and not wanting to do anything. And those are the times in those hardships and those struggles is when I started to turn to God, is when I started to uh, cry out for help. Sometimes I don't even know what I was talk, um, crying out to, but I just remember, I can't remember word for word, but just laying in my bed, like help, you know, whether it was just help, in my the thoughts of my mind, like God, God help me or whatever is, whoever you are, help me. Like, please help me. God help me with this or... Um, I didn't even know necessarily who I was 
you know, or what exactly I was crying out, but I, inside I was just crying out for help. I just needed help with those, with those trials and things I was going into. And during this time, and things that started getting me to question as well, you know, I remember many times, just kind of some of the hypocrisy in the church growing, that I was growing up in. I remember many times getting, leaving church service, getting done, listening to a sermon of which we were trying so hard to pay attention to, but sometimes not understanding and not getting what the minister was trying, attempting to say. As soon as we walked out the back door, there was cuss words flying, you know, dirty jokes, dirty conversation, um, smoking. You know, we would light up a cigarette in the back church parking lot. We'd put in chewing tobacco. And the immediately walking out the back door, it was like a day and night difference going through the church doors, listening to a sermon, playing the part of being a Christian, right? And then walking out the back doors and acting like you'd never, you know, you never just listen to a sermon. And I remember these things starting to hit me like, this is not how it's supposed to look. And yes, of course, I, I did those things. You know, I was just as much guilty as everybody else of doing those, of doing those things that were wrong and are wrong. But it finally started to realize, it made me think, I'm like, why is this happening? Why are people saying they're Christians, they're going to church on Sunday? Why am I going to church on Sunday, but yet I'm living in sin, I'm um, I'm swearing my, I wouldn't swear around my family, my mom or dad or anybody, but I, with my friends, we, I mean, we were cussing and swearing all the time. That's just what we did just because it's cool. And you're with your friends and we were smoking cigarettes, like a social smoke. And we would buy a pack of cigarettes for the weekend and go smoke with our buddies. And whether it's chewing tobacco or whatever, I remember going to church every Sunday, but yet during that time, I was addicted to pornography the whole entire time. I was acting as a Christian, but yet inside I was dead. I was truly walking dead. I was a slave to sin. And I was addicted to pornography for years while going to church, but I never told anyone. I'd never, you know, I would ask for my sins forgiven in a general sense, but that didn't stop me from continuing to keep watching pornography, continuing to think lustful thoughts, continually to, continuing to watch terrible movies with my friends and watch um, sexual, sensual, licentious movies that were not of God at all. And we did those things um, very often when we were all together. It was like, that's just what we did. That's what we talked about is all these, and girls and, and making acting as girls were objects, you know, talking about their, whether it was their behind or their body features or whatever it was, that's just what we did. Because again, we weren't, I wasn't a Christian. We weren't Christians. We were carnal. Our hearts were carnal. We were living in the flesh and we, um, we weren't walking as Christians and I wasn't walking as a Christian. But now I look back and I see that those things were not right. And, um, I remember, and, and that's the thing too, is most in the church, that's just what you did. There were, you, you know, smoking cigarettes, chewing tobacco, talking about these things, making dirty jokes, even the adults in the church and the ministers, what, what have you, that was a normal thing for us. So when, whenever we talked about these things, that's all I had known. Not everybody was like that, of course, not, you know, I can't just single out 
ever say everybody in the church did that, but most, that's just what I was used to, was the dirty conversation and the, um, the bad, you know, examples that were being set, and that's all I knew. But while, during this time, as these trials came along, as these hardships came along, and God was starting to open my eyes and starting to, you know, realize like, wow, I'm not walking as I should. I say I'm a Christian, but I'm not walking as I should. And God would send Christians in my life, Christians into my life. And at first I would get upset and I would get annoyed and I would get uncomfortable because I thought, you know, oh, here's somebody, they think they're self-righteous. They, they, they spoke openly about God. They weren't, you know, ashamed of speaking about Jesus and inside. I, I was ashamed. Every time I mentioned God or Jesus or the Bible, before I was super ashamed. It was embarrassing. I didn't. It was something that was taboo. We were we we were went to church, but we never talked ever talked about God, talked about the Bible, talked about um, Jesus, talked about faith. It was taboo. You don't speak about it. So it was very awkward for me when at first I was seeing Christians who were actually talking about their faith and openly proclaiming Jesus. And at at first, like I said, I was uncomfortable and I was. It was awkward, um, and I would get annoyed. I'm like, why? I don't understand. These people think they're every. They, these people think they're all that, and they, these people they think they're better than everybody. When that wasn't the case at all. That's just how I was seeing it because I was looking at it from a carnal, from my flesh, from my perspective of my flesh, living in sin. That's what I saw, because their godly conversation, their godly example, um, condemned my life of sin. It pointed out that I was doing something wrong. That's why I didn't like it. That's why I was uncomfortable. It's because they were walking as they should be. And I remember first starting to read my Bible for the first time. It was about the summer fall of 2018, somewhere around there. I don't have a specific date or anything. But the very first time I opened the Word of God for the first time in my life, again, never, never opened the Bible before until this day. I went to church for every Sunday for years. And I remember bringing my Bible into church for the very first time. And it was so scary. It was so nerve wracking. I was so nervous. I was felt like everybody was judging me and looking in my direction. And it was just such a new thing for me because I'd never done it before. And it was hard for me, but God gave me the strength to do it. It was like, almost like the very first test that he gave me. He was like, okay, I see that you're reading the Bible. I see that you're doing these things. How about you bring your Bible to church? And so that was one of the very first things that I did when I was reading the Word. And, and albeit, you know, we didn't, this is why it was so different as well, because nobody brought their Bibles into church. That's something that we didn't do. Specifically in this first Apostolic Lutheran Church, we didn't do that. Now, we did do it for, they did bring it to Bible study, but all the more we should be bringing our Bibles into church. Um, we only had uh, songbooks in the pews, um, but we didn't have Bibles. Nobody brought their Bible to church. So that was why I was going so against the grain to bring my Bible into the into the church. And I remember um, I remember coming across reading and coming across a verse in John 3. And this is what it says. Jesus answered and said unto him, this is when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And I remember reading this, and I'm like, I read it, and I'm like, nope, I'm not born again. I know I'm not born again. I'm like, I'm not, the way, the state that I'm in, I'm not going to see the kingdom of God. I'm not going to be in heaven. And that verse hit me. And I was never, never, nobody ever told me I had to be born again. No one ever said, you need to be made new. You need to be changed by God. Your heart, your flesh, flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. Excuse me. You need to be made new. You need to be born again out of water and the spirit. You need to be baptized. You need to be born again of the spirit of God. But nobody ever told me in the church that I was grown, that I was born and raised in, ministers never said it, that I had to be born again. This is salvation. In order for me to go into the kingdom of God, I have to be born again. And that was when I came to the realization, you could call it, you know, realization, whatever realization, but it was the first time that I realized I am not born again. I need to be born again. I need to be made new. I need to be made right before God. And this is, it was, it's a spiritual rebirth. It's a spiritual recognition that, you know, there's, there's two mans. There's the old man, there's our carnal man, and then there's the new man who is after Christ, who is in Christ. And so after I came to that realization, God, I kept on reading the word. I kept on getting into the scriptures. I kept on, uh, you know, reading the word because I came to this realization and I was still going to the Apostolic Lutheran Church. I was still attending the church and I didn't know that I was going to leave yet. I just realized that, wow, this is like amazing. The word of God is incredible. I've never opened it and read it, but it's, there's so many good things. And at first it was kind of hard to understand, but you just ask God for help and he helps you understand it. And it's just amazing. And I remember going on the church ski trip. Now, if you're apostolic, you know what the church ski trip is. It's where a bunch of kids usually between the ages of after high school, graduate high school, to before you're married. So anywhere from 18 to 30, 35, I don't know. It all depends on just that age group of you're a graduate high school, but you're not yet married. So you're single and you go on a ski trip. So we got, they do this usually every spring, the church does. And I remember going on, this was my second ski trip in 2019, and we went to Salt Lake City. And while during this time, you know, I still, God was working upon my heart a lot. And I was realizing things that, you know, that needed to change and that, um, that, yeah, just God was helping me and just, I was helping, I was understanding, you know, understanding more and more of what, it was becoming more clear of what God's will was for me. And while on the ski trip, um, again, I was still struggling with pornography at this point. I knew that I had to stop, but I still, I still loved my sins. I still was, you know, God was helping me with like cussing and stuff like that, but there are still sins that I was working on, like anger or bitterness, things that in my mind or whatever, if, if it was um, just complaining in general, like I was, when I was younger, I just, for some reason, I just remember being a big complainer and not seeing life from the perspective of a Christian. And while on a ski trip, all these things kind of amounted. They came to a head, and I couldn't deal. Like, I couldn't handle anymore. I couldn't. I realized that I needed to change, but I still was struggling with sin. I still, 
And yet I was trying to figure it out at the same time because I was going to this church, but I was seeing things differently. I was reading the Bible and I was seeing it differently than what the church was saying. And all these things were going in my, through my mind and my head and I, and I was kind of just getting overwhelmed and I didn't know what to do. And so on the ski trip, um, I remember the specific day and for those who were on the ski trip, it was the day that everyone went to, went to Moab, to the National Park Moab. And I remember specifically staying in the the big house, the mansion place, the big house that we were staying at, that we rented. And I remember specifically, you know, God be putting it on my mind to, no, you stay at the house, like stay here. You're like, I'm not supposed to go to Moab for whatever reason. I didn't know at the time, but I had a very strong conviction to stay and not go to Moab. Because thinking about it, you're like, well, why would I not go to Moab? It's like, a, it's a beautiful place. I think they did, they rode Jeeps, like they do Jeeps upon the rock in the park and stuff, and that's what they did. But I had a very strong conviction that no, I'm supposed to stay here. And that was the very day that I had uh, my mental, emotional, spiritual breakdown where everything came to a head. And it was like a panic attack slash a ch like a pivotal change that happened. And I remember... There's only a few guys that stayed back at the house. And I remember eating, uh, you know, eating, and all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. And I was panicking and I was freaking out. I was like, what's going on? What's going on? And I remember um, calling my dad first. I called him and, you know, kind of explained, I'm, I'm having a panic attack. I don't know what's going on. And, and he tried to, you know, talk me through some things. And then I called a Christian that I had just known, that I had known. And this, and I, and I, that's, that's the only person, those are the two people I knew who to call that I could rely upon it was my dad. And I called a Christian, this Christian and, um, who I'd met recently and he helped, you know, he basically helped me, um, work through things. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm missing a part before this, before I called them, um, or no, maybe it was after, actually, I think it was after I called them, you know, they helped me pray or the. I got on the phone and I prayed with him and, he, and I went in the bathroom, you know, just to have some privacy and I prayed with him on the phone. And then another person called me that he knew, another Christian called me and he just helped me, you know, just comforted me with God's word and comforted me, just helped me with what I was struggling with. And it was really, you know, it was really helpful for them that they called me and that was a huge, you know, that God sent both of them. And I called one and they both um, called me immediately. I think I texted the first one immediately. I was like, Hey, can you pray for me? I'm going through a, like a panic attack of sort. And he called me as soon as he saw the message, he called me right away. He's like, Hey, what's going on can, for help? And so that was really helpful for him to them to do that. And also after that, um, I remember going into the bathroom and just everything was amounting. And I just wept in the bathroom. I went on the floor on my knees and just wept before the Lord and I confessed my sins and I confessed my pornography addiction. I confessed all these things I was going through, my struggles, my pains, my hurts, my addictions, my, that I needed healing, I need help, I need forgiveness of all my sins, that I didn't know what to do, that I was confused and all these things on my mind. I just went in the bathroom and I wept like I've never wept before. I've never ever wept like that, like a little baby, just tears were just flying and it was amazing. It was beautiful because it was the first time that I ever went, like I could ever truly like came before God and I got on my knees and I just gave everything up. I'm like, God, I cannot do this without you. Please change me. 
whatever I said, I can't remember, but I just remember weeping in the bathroom for I don't know how long. And who knows if they people heard me or not, but I was just weeping, you know, the guys that were at the place. Um, and that was where kind of everything, you know, turned. And that was, I remember after just feeling so much relief and so much just peace, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding just came upon me after that. And the peace was like I've never felt before, peace that I never had before after that moment. And after that, and, and after I got out of the bathroom, actually, I remember, and the other thing I just remember to do, and I praise God for this, is I turn on my phone put headphones in and I just click play on the Bible and I just listened to hours on the Bible and that comforted me. I laid down in my bed and I just listened for hours and hours of the scriptures and it was so comforting. Comforting is so, um, is exactly what I needed just to turn on the word of God and just let it play in my head. And it was just amazing how God helped us in all those different ways. And that was one of the, the main, I guess you could say pivotal point for my Christian walk was that was breaking down and just falling upon the rock of Christ and realizing I can't do this on my on my own. I need you, God. I need you desperately. We have to get to that point where we're surrendered. Where we cannot be full of self. We have to be full of Jesus. We have to be surrendered of self and just give everything before the cross. Before we give surrender all of our everything that we have, all of our things that we're dealing with and lay it at the feet of Jesus and he'll take it and he'll help us. And after the ski trip, um, I just kept on reading the Bible, kept on, you know, kept on realizing more errors and unbiblical things within the church. And finally, God revealed to me that I needed to get baptized biblically. And because growing up, you know, I was baptized as an infant and um, more and more I read, the more and more errors I was seeing, and God was pressing it upon me that I needed to get baptized, and after, and um, and actually the that I needed to leave the church. But I kept on realizing the errors and the things that weren't right. And you know, I was learning along the process, and I was learning all these things. And in the summer of 2019, was when realizing I needed to leave the church, and after I left. Um, I got baptized biblically and finally as an adult in the Portage Lake, in, excuse me, in Portage Lake. And I confessed publicly that Jesus was my Savior and He was my Redeemer and I gave my life and I surrendered my life and I was baptized, you know, buried under the water and risen with Christ in baptism. I was baptized and then from that point on decided to follow Jesus. And from there, I knew some Christians, and I'd met some more. I was meeting more Christians, and I was invited to, I started going to this uh, Bible study group called ODAC. It was called Open Discussions About Christ. That way we called it ODAC, O-D-A-C. And I was invited, and um, we would get together at 6 o'clock every Saturday night to talk about the Bible and life and just spend time together to grow as Christians. And this was a very growing, helpful and growing experience for me just to get together with other believers and grow together as Christians and just talk about things that we're struggling with or things that we need help with or just ask for prayer and ask for help. And um, this was the first time, again, it was a big change for me, um, 
that I could openly talk about Jesus. And I, you know, after leaving the church and it was so freeing, I wanted to just shout it, shout it on the rooftops of what Jesus has done for me. And just, it was so freeing to know that, you know, God was working upon my heart. And I'd been, I, you know, I've been changed and I will continue to change until he comes back. Um, and, you know, through that, God was helping me overcome sins and I was being pruned of many idols and actions, he was helping me to overcome those things through his strength and power. And eventually, you know, after that period of time, after I left the First Apostolic Lutheran Church, there was a time where I wasn't attending a church, and I, this is when I was attending those, you know, those meetings. It, it wasn't church per se, right? But, um, you know, there's a point in time where I was looking for a church, you know, I was kind of asking the Lord, like, hey, where do you want, Lord, where do you want me to go? I'm not attending a physical church at the moment. Um, just going to move my microphone up. But, you know, I was looking for a church and, you know, eventually after looking for one and meeting a few people, I joined a local Baptist church that I also left actually. And I will speak a bit more on that later, but just continuing on, I'm going to dive into some of the few false, you know, apostolic Lutheran doctrines and beliefs that are in the word of God you know, and I'll just, that are not, I'm sorry, are not in the Word of God. And I'll just kind of discuss a few of these things. And like I said earlier, I've just mentioned it a bit. I was baptized originally uh, as an infant. So I was baptized. They did the sprinkling upon my head with the water and, you know, everything. However, you know, the Bible says that as we, when we, become Christians, we should be baptized as an adult, as one who can profess with their mouth and believe that Jesus is, is their Savior. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that, you know, infant baptism is, is something that we should do. It's always, it's always um, adult baptism, that being able to confess with your mouth and believe on Jesus Christ. And in order to be baptized, we make that decision to follow Jesus, and we have to be able, like I said, to repent of our sins and proclaim with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. Now, babies and infants can't do this. In Acts 8, 36 to 30, 38, says, And as they went on their way, speaking of um, Philip, um, I'm talking about speaking of the Ethiopian eunuch and the Philip, and as they went on their way, they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So there's four things we can learn from this quickly. They came to a body of water, not a little cup or bowl with water in it. The eunuch asked Philip with his mouth what hindered him to be baptized, basically what's stopping him from being baptized. And Philip told the eunuch, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Leaving the eunuch to proclaim with his mouth and make a decision to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Like I said earlier, infants cannot do this and cannot say that they believe. They cannot. They also cannot repent. It would be of no avail, avail to question an infant on this matter because we know that they wouldn't be able to answer for themselves. Both, and, and the fourth point, both Philip 
and the eunuch went down into the water so Philip could properly baptize the eunuch. They came to a body of water, so like a lake or a pond. Philip immersed him under the water. He went down, it says, they went down both into the water and he baptized him. So why does the church I grew up in, or, uh, you know, if it's a Lutheran church or Catholic church, why do these churches and the church specifically that I grew up in baptize infants when infants cannot make rational decisions for themselves? Themselves, it's tradition. Our parents and our fathers and their fathers pass down traditions and we accept them and we don't question them. Um, but mainly it comes from the Catholic Church. It comes from the Roman Catholic Church, and that's where that tradition comes from, is, you know, we don't, it, these traditions get passed down, and we, when we come into it, you know, we're born into a church, and we don't even question it. We're like, oh, well, this must be right, because the church is doing it. Um, and specifically, Acts chapter 8, verse 37, was removed from Catholic-approved Bibles, because it shows that infants cannot be baptized. So the Catholic Church just removed the verse because, you know, they baptize infants and they don't want that verse saying the exact opposite of what they believe and what they teach. So therefore, um, you know, a lot of verses, a lot of Bibles are missing Acts 8.37 where it specifically says that you have to proclaim with your mouth and believe in Jesus Christ to be baptized. But most of those verses are taken out of the Bibles. So... And then another reason why the Catholic Church or the First Apostolic Lutheran Church and other churches baptize infants is it comes from the doctrine of original sin inherited from Adam. And so they believe and they baptize infants as a way to cleanse them from their original sin that Adam gave them when they come into this world. However, original sin is not biblical. It's not true. Each individual chooses to sin. Yes, we have a sinful nature, but we don't, the sin of Adam is not applied to each individual that comes into this world. But that's what the Catholic Church teaches. And that's also what many churches teaches. Many church churches will teach is the sin of Adam is placed directly upon you. And it's placed directly, rather than you choose, rather than you yourself falling short, you're already, that sin of Adam is already upon you, which is not true. Ezekiel 18, 17 and 20 says, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. Yet ye say, Why? Doth not the son bear the iniquity of the father? When the son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. His righteousness, The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So again, God does not impute sin from our fathers or vice versa, or from Adam. Rather, the result of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden are still felt in our world today, which makes us prone to sin. It makes us, it, we're born into a world where it's more, we're more able to sin. We're more able to choose to sin and break God's commandments. And what does 
baptist, baptism or baptize even mean? Well, it comes from the Greek work baptisti or bapto, baptizo or baptistes, meaning to make whelmed, that is fully wet, whelm or cover fully with fluid. So it's a very clearly baptism is actually being submerged under the water. Like for example, if you dive into the water, you you know, when you dive, you go underneath the water. Baptism is going underneath and being, it's symbolic for being buried with Christ and rising with Christ. And finally, which should matter the most because Jesus is a perfect example. How was Jesus baptized? Matthew 3.16 says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Jesus went down into the Jordan to be baptized and went up and came up out of the water, meaning Jesus was immersed in the water. And when was Jesus baptized? As an adult, it says in Luke 3.23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, which is the son of Heli. Jesus was not an infant, and he, he was an adult. And why, why do we have biblical baptism? What is it a symbol for? It's a symbolic burial to our old ways, our old self, our old life, and our sins. Baptism is one of the first steps of obedience for a Christian, for a new born-again Christian. Romans 6, 3-6 and 11 says, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him in baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his flesh, or I'm sorry, likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Likewise, verse 11, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, another false doctrine that is in the first episode apostolic lutheran church and is the pinnacle and the primary doctrine is called the blessing and it's kind of can be used in many different names or called many different names you can call it the blessing which is mostly most people know it by or else the forgiveness of sins or the office of the keys it's kind of a combination of multiple um different sets of doctrines kind of combined into one and it it comes from a few things so it comes from a combination of Catholic absolution um, and from Lars Lieve Lestadius with what happened with him and Lat Mary. And, and it also comes from Martin Luther, who still had some, you know, Catholic teachings when it came to specifically like the absolution. So why does the First Apostolic Lutheran Church teach that we have to go to another man in the process to have our sins forgiven as a whole rather than go to God alone? Because the Bible says that God alone can forgive sins, not man. And we do not need another believer in the church to help us to have our sins forgiven by and before God. We don't need another believer or minister in the process or in the 
in the way on the journey to get our sins forgiven. Sins, sins are forgiven by God alone, and he's the only one who can forgive sins. And therefore, we don't need another man in the path, in the way to have our sins forgiven before God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our mediator between us and the Father. It's not us, another believer in the congregation, another minister, and then the Father, or and then Jesus, or it's not us, communion, and then God. No, it's us, Jesus, as our mediator. He stands in between us and then our Father. So Jesus is the one who is interceding. Jesus is the one who is our mediator. Mediator means the middleman. He is our middleman, not a member of the church or not a minister of the church. What's tricky about this is because the blessing is, it's a concealed and wrapped version of Catholic confession and absolution. However, it's, it's, a, it's slightly different in a couple ways. Um, it, it's, in the Catholic Church, a, in order to go, have your sins forgiven, you go to a confession, like you go to a, like the, a, conf, a confession booth, if you will. You, conf, you go into this uh, you know, private confession place and you confess your sins directly to a priest, and he'll proclaim, um, you know, I absolve your sins, or whatever the phrase that he says. But in our the first Apostolic Lutheran Church, the one where I grew up, you go to another believer in the church, and instead of confessing a specific sin or saying um, a specific thing that was on your mind or a specific thing that you offended God with, that you sinned against God, it was just this general sense of we're sinners and we're burdened by our sins. So we went to another believer in the church and we asked, you know, we asked, can you bless me? So we'd go up to the believer, ask, can you bless me? And they would, they would uh, say this phrase to us, believe all sins forgiven in Jesus' name and precious blood, just like the Catholic priest would say to the person confessing that believe all sins forgiven in Jesus' name and precious blood, assuring them that when you ask for that blessing, just like the Catholic asks for his sins, he confesses his sins, then the priest, or in our case, the First Apostolic Lutheran Church, the believer would say, believe all sins forgiven in Jesus' name and precious blood as an, assur as an assurance and as a confirmation to say your sins have been cleansed, your sins have been forgiven, your sins have been washed away. First John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And to believe man has the power to outright forgive sins is, is blasphemy when looking to the Bible. On uh, Mark 2, 7, it says, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Right? The Pharisees were wrong in saying that Jesus was blaspheming because Jesus is God. We know Jesus is God. Many, multiple times in the scriptures, Jesus is God. Clearly, he says, I and the Father are one, right? In John 10. He also says, before Abraham was, I am. He says many verses, there's many times in the scriptures that Jesus is, we know that Jesus is God. And he says also in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And we know that Jesus is the word made flesh and he is God. And Matthew 9, uh, 2 through 3 and 6 says, and behold, 
they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Verse 6, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. It is not necessary for us to have a man in between as our middleman in order to for, to get forgiveness. They, they'll, those who believe that they're forgiven, getting forgiven by God, but yet still going to another man and asking for that, they're not realizing that they're still using a man in the process to, for, to ask for forgiveness of sins. Sure, they may believe that God alone can forgive sins, but by the way that their actions are showing what they're doing, their actions are proclaiming that they have to go to this person to, in order to be forgiven by God. They have to go to this priest in order to be forgiven by God. They have to go to this minister at communion in order to be forgiven by God when that's not true at all. The Bible says Jesus is our mediator. The Bible says to call upon the Lord. The Bible says to confess our sins to God only. Yes, if we sin specifically against someone, if we sin specifically against our brother or sister, in Christ, then, or, you know, a believer in the church, then you can, there's nothing wrong with going to them, you know, alone and say, hey, please forgive me for uh, stepping on your foot. Or, you know, I'm just trying to think of, it, of, an, of an example. Please forgive me for talking behind your back. That wasn't very Christ-like of me. I'm, forgive me. I'm sorry about that. And that, you know, that's what we're supposed to do, right? You go to them one-on-one -on -one and you talk about the specific sin that you committed against them and you can reconcile that way. And when you sin against someone, you also sin against God, because we know that there's, you know, the Ten Commandments, there's ten, but they're summed up by two. You know, there's the two of the greatest commandments, which is, number one is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So when you go against your fellow men and you sin against them, you're going against those last six commandments of the Ten Commandments, which is, you know, you're going against your neighbor. And when you do that, you know, you also have to confess that to them, yes, like I said, but to God as well. Because uh, we know in Matthew 6, in 6.14, it says, to for if, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So it's just that verse shows that relationship of if you forgive them, you know, your father will forgive you. You go to the father in prayer. You go to them and ask them directly. Even if even if it was 20 years ago, it was in high school, they did something against you, you did something against them, or if they're passed away and you don't have that opportunity anymore. Regardless of the circumstance, the Christian's delight or duty and joy is we are called to forgive. God says to forgive because if we forgive, our Heavenly Father will forgive us. But when it comes to God, receiving forgiveness from, from God, we have to go to him. He is the one who forgives sins. And Christ is the middleman to get there. And I'm going to read, just so you have a better understanding and more clarity, I'm going to read from the catechism again that I was born and raised on. And this was, this is Dr., the full name is Dr. Martin Luther's Small Catechism 
and K.G. Leinberg's Bible History. And this is on page 14 of the, and it's called Confession. This is the part about confession. So, quote, What is confession? Confession consists of two parts. The one is that we confess our sins. The other, that we receive absolution from the confessor as of God himself. In no wise doubting, but firmly believing that our sins are thus forgiven before God in heaven. So you see this idea of um, confess to the person as if they're God's, as if you're confessing to God, as if they're the ones who are um, ordained in that position to forgive your sins. Because again, that's where that office of the keys comes in um, of what the Apostolic Lutheran Church believes. And then it goes on to say, kind of goes through an outline. It says, then the confessor shall say, and this is what it says, quote, God be merciful to thee and strengthen thy faith. Amen. Furthermore, goes on to say, quote, dost thou believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? Answer, yes, I believe. Then he shall say, quote, be it unto thee as thou believest, and I, by the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive thee thy sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Depart in peace. End quote. So as you can see, it's, it's going through a this specifically, the part of confession in the uh, catechism, is going through what confession is supposed to look like. So this is like the blessing, forgiveness of sins, office of the keys. This is what the First Apostolic Lutheran Church would be. This is how they would run through that, except it's more of a, a Lutheranized version, an apostolic version of, you know, Catholic confession, Catholic, Catholic absolution, but it's very, very similar. It's just kind of deceiving how it's um, kind of wrapped and concealed, if you will. Um, and then they use verses, like we're, we'll te- talk about this on the next slide, they use a few verses, and so I kind of already explained what what the office of the keys is, what the power of the keys is according to the First Apostolic Lutheran Church. They believe that God has given them this power specifically to forgive the sins of people in the, in the congregation, and they use a few verses, but what they don't understand or they don't um, realize is it's just being misunderstood. It's not they don't realize it's something that the Catholic Church has or um, has created this doctrine and people run with it. And that's what originally um, kind of Lestadius took part of it is when he was had his his encounter with Lap Mary, that's kind of the first thing. That's kind of how it initialized this, the blessing, when he was speaking with Lap Mary and he felt... Um, I think I remember a quote of him saying, like, she believed like a child or something like that. Or she was, um, you know, simple faith, the faith of a child. And he felt for the first time after meeting with Mary that he finally had true faith or he finally felt peace or something along those lines. And it's just a misunderstanding of Matthew sixteen nineteen, John twenty twenty three, and Matthew eighteen fifteen through 20. And they'll use, use these verses you know, Catholics alike and First Apostolics will use these verses to say, see, God has given his church direct access to forgive people's sins, when this is not at all what it's talking about. It's a twist. They're just twisting church discipline. These verses are about church discipline, and here's what it says. 
binding and loosing is God has given us binding and loosing for the sense of, like I said before, church discipline. Matthew 18, 15 through 18 says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he, if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. And if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you, that if two of you should agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. So there's three steps that are that happens in ch- church discipline. The first step, which the first apostolics and Lestadians and old apostolics would have you, the apostolics, they miss that, okay, number one, if there's a brother or a sister who's trespassed, who's trespassed against you, who's sinned, or who is walking contrary to the Bible, you go to him. You don't bring it up on the church. You don't have this church tradition that you um, ask somebody and they just say this, they just repeat this phrase to you. No, the Bible says that if your brother trespasses against you, you go to him alone. You go to him when just you and him, or you and her, or her and her, whatever the situation is, and you tell them that fault. You tell them that sin. You you correct that, and you say, hey, look, the Bible says this, but you're doing this. You know, that's the loving thing to do as Christians. We go to someone because we love them. We say, hey, wait a minute, you're, you know, we should be walking this way, and not, I see that you're walking this way. And if he hears, if he or she hears what you're trying to say to them, then you've gained your brother. That It's as if nothing happened. It's if that sin never committed God, you know, you don't say, I forgive you in Jesus' name and precious blood. No. If that, if that person repents, they're forgiven by God. It's that simple. If that person says, you know what, please forgive me. Um, I'm sorry I messed up. I, yeah, I, I can't do this. You don't, you know, I shouldn't be doing this, rather. You don't have to say the phrase of, believe all sins are forgiven in Jesus' name and precious blood. That's only something that's been added by the church. It hasn't been added by the Bible. But the second step of Matthew 18 is if he doesn't hear you, it doesn't he or she doesn't hear you, to take one or two members of the church with you so that you know wit- you can have witnesses there. And then you tell them his fault. And so all of them are aware of their, their fault. And then so on and so forth. If they repent, then he's forgiven by God. And the third step, if they don't repent, you bring it to the whole church, the final step. And if they finally don't repent, they are no longer part of the church. They chose to remove themselves from the body of Christ. They chose, because of their sin, to per, to kick themselves out because of disobedience. So that's how church discipline is. It's, it's binding and loosing in the sense that if that person repents, then, you know, that's loosed in heaven. If that person doesn't repent, that is bound in heaven. It's not that God has given his church specifically the power to forgive that person's sin. That's not it, as, that's not it as, at all. It's just that God has given the steps of church discipline. 
And if that person repents when a brother or sister comes to them, then that sin has been loosed. And that's where it's twisted. It's about church discipline, not about forgiveness of their sin specifically. And another point some will use in the Apostolic Lutheran churches to say that Ananias laid hands on Saul and blessed him with the forgiveness of sins or the blessing. And so in Acts 9, 17 and 18, it says, And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes at it, as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. And so, most will say, when reading this, they say that because Ananias laid his hands on Saul and was filled with the Holy Ghost and scales from, fell from his eyes, that this is, was supposed to mean that Ananias blessed Saul with the forgiveness of sins through the office of the keys because he had that power. But there is nowhere, nowhere in that verse that implies that. If the blessing... This phrase, this tr- this tradition, this doctrine that the First Apostolic Lutheran Church believes, if this is in the Bible, if we're supposed to do this, God would have made it known to us. God would have said, and he would have said that phrase specifically. He would have made it so clear that we could have direction. That's how, that's how he does it. He gives us direction on how to do speci- specific things so that we, can, we are educated and we know through the Bible, that this is this is the way that forgiveness of sins comes. This is the way that we receive the, um, our sins forgiven through Christ. But no, it doesn't mention anything about the blessing. It doesn't mention anything about that specific phrase that's being mentioned either. Another thing is there's no, like I said earlier, earlier mentioned, there's no teaching on being born again. And again, the church did not teach, did not say, did not preach that ye must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And I never heard this once growing up, which is a crucial part of salvation. That's a crucial part of entering the kingdom of God is salvation. That's salvation itself is being born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God. And again, in John 3, like I read before, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When Instead, when someone new would come into the First Apostolic Lutheran Church, instead of telling them about repentance of sin, about being born again, about being baptized, about faith in Jesus Christ, they are told to come to communion and to experience the forgiveness of sins for the first time. And that's what they believe the gospel is, is having the forgiveness of sins in the specific way of the blessing and the office of the keys and the binding and loosing being preached to them specifically, that's what they believe. And that's what they do when someone new comes into the church. You need to be born again. They don't say you need to be baptized and made new. The Christian has to be given a new heart. It's a total transformation. So when that person comes to, for example, me or someone else who's a believer in Christ, and they ask you, how do I be saved? You have to come as you are, but you won't stay as you are with Christ. Those old sins, those old desires, those old things that you used to walk in and like and enjoy and love, they pass away. They, they, you die. Those, the old man dies. Second Corinthians 4.17 it 
states, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. A lot of people will say, or, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I, there's no, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I can't over, I, I'm going to be sinning the rest of my life. You, I can't, there's, that's no possible way. It's not possible. Well, sure, we will make mistakes. We're not, we're not Jesus. We're not, we're not the only perfect sinless man that ever walked this earth. We're not Jesus. We will make mistakes. Yes. However, the Christian, like it says in those two verses, he will become a new creature. Those old things pass away. And we can do all things through Christ. We can overcome sin through Christ because it is Christ within us doing and walking after the ways of righteousness. It's no longer us. That's why we have to be born again. Yes, if you're living in the flesh, of course you're, you're never, never going to stop sinning. Of course you're never going to overcome certain sins that you're dealing with. Because you're in the flesh, it's impossible. You're relying upon yourself. You have to rely upon Jesus. You have to rely upon a power apart from yourself in order to overcome sin. That's why Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ, not through me, not through another person, not through a believer, not through a minister, not through my mom, not through my dad, not through my cousin. I can do all things through Christ. That's the important thing. And when we become Christians, we're called to be a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And when we're born again, God calls us, Jesus specifically said, to deny ourselves. Mark 8.34-36 And when he had called the people unto him, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The Christian, one, the Christian life is one of self-denial. It's one of following after Jesus. We're no longer doing what we want to do, our carnal desires. We no longer want to do what we want best for ourselves. No, we deny ourselves and we pick up the cross of Christ and follow after him because it's our desire, it's our joy. That's what we want to do. Another thing in the false apostolic Lutheran church that was never addressed, and it's kind of similar to um, it's kind of similar to the blessing in a way, but it's false repentance. And just in general, people, people believing when they confess or they say, you know, please forgive me of my sins, they don't realize it's a false repentance because repentance, again, is confessing your sin and forsaking. It's changing your mindset and you're walking one way and repentance is turning that, going completely 180 degrees and walking the other way. So we were not taught what true repentance is. Rather, the general idea that we had was that we were all sinners, which is true, but we didn't know that God requires us to no longer walk in those old sins, to no longer 
willfully sin, to no longer commit those sins anymore. We are not stuck in a state of constant and continual sitting with our sinning with and in this sorrowful state of our head being down and moping because we're such sin such, such sinful people and sinners. Yes, before Jesus. But remember, all things become new for the born-again Christian. It is so much better to live in freedom than to to live in bondage of being sorrowful over being in a stuck in a sinful state. There is victory and there is power in Jesus to overcome those things. That's why Jesus came, so we can live a new life. Biblical repentance involves two steps. Number one, yes, be sorry or remorseful over you know your sin for offending God. And confess your sins to God. You know, go to him, go to God. Don't go to another person. Yes, go to that person if you've sinned against them specifically, if you've stepped on their foot or said a bad joke about them or gossiped about them, whatever. If you've sinned against them specifically, yes, go to that person in that way. But God, we need to go to God himself and go to Christ as he is. And the second part is to turn away from sin and no longer commit it. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. In John chapter 8, 11, he said, sorry, not she, he said, No man, Lord. Oh, no, it is she, because it's the woman caught in adultery. Forgive me. John 8, 11 said, She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Second Corinthians seven ten says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance, to salvation not to be repented of. And Revelation 21, 8, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters Idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake with burneth, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Again, nothing that defiles can enter heaven. Sin cannot enter, cannot enter heaven. Another thing that we've been taught is confirmation. We have to go through this two weeks of confirmation to get confirmed into the church. But do we have to have our first communion? Do we have to do this to become a child of God or to receive the Holy Spirit or to be a part of the church? No, we don't, because the Bible, again, does not say we have to do this. Um, nowhere in the Bible does it talk about confirmation. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you have to go through this confirmation class before you become a Christian or before you get confirmed into the church. Again, it's just a tradition. But how does one become a part of the Church of Christ? Simple. It's just through repentance and faith in Christ. Anyone any whosoever repents of their sins, accepts God's mercy, repents of their sins and has their puts their faith and trust in Christ is a part of his church. Being born again into a er, I'm sorry, being born into a certain church does not determine your salvation. Does not just because I was born into the first Apostolic Lutheran Church does not mean I'm safe. Does not mean I'm saved. It's just simply I was just simply born into it. That doesn't mean anything about salvation. When Peter was preaching to the multitudes, they were convicted of their sin and asked what they should do to be saved. In Acts chapter 2, 37 and 38, 
Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter didn't say they had to complete a two-week reception and then receive a certificate, a certification from this event. No, he said, Repent, be baptized. Believe on Jesus. Repent of your sins. Um, and in the First Apostolic Lutheran Church, at the end of these two weeks, you had to partake in your very first communion, where it was the first time where you received the wafer and the grape juice for, um, for you know, for communion. And this is where you would also go to the altar of the church, get on your knees, and kneel before ministers, and have your sins forgiven from a minister while kneeling on the church altar. And this is also where they use that phrase, the blessing, the office of the keys, the power of the keys. The ministers would say to each confirmant, to each person in confirmation, boy and girl, um, kneeling at the altar, believe all sins forgiven in Jesus' name and precious blood. And this is what, you know, this is what they did. This is the tradition that they went through. Again, confirmation only comes from the Catholic Church. And it's passed down from tradition, nowhere else. It's just simply tradition. Now, the next thing that is taught, which is misunderstood, is the kingdom of God. And I, I have the kingdom of God question mark because what when the first apostolic Lutherans say the kingdom of God, they mean they specifically mean the congregation of the people who attend their church only. And if you leave their specific church, you are no longer part of the kingdom of God and have chosen to separate yourself from God's fellowship because you no longer attend that church. And most also believe that you lose the Holy Spirit when you leave because they say that the Holy Spirit does not go with you when you leave God's kingdom. But this is very, um, yes, it's unbiblical, but it's very deceiving in how it's being said because they believe the kingdom of God is their actual church, their congregation. They believe that they are the kingdom of God upon the earth, which is not true at all. And I'm just going to read a few ex ex excerpts from the Greetings of Peace, which is a letter, a bulletin that goes out, that's sent out for the church, the congregation, to families that attend a church for whether it's encouragement or for it's um, like a little message of message about faith. It's sent out to everyone in the church. And I'll just read a couple sections here, just to help you understand what they believe and what they specifically mean, what they say when they're saying it. Quote, the Apostle Paul compares our natural body to the body of Christ, which is the fellowship of God's children here on this earth. It is a very fitting picture, just as the natural body of a man works together in unity of purpose, so also the spiritual body of Christ or God's kingdom here on this earth, has always worked together in one unity of purpose to preach the gospel. Now, a few some of the things that they're saying, they seem like, they're, you know, they're good things. However, it's very deceiving how they put this in God's kingdom as being the body of Christ upon this earth. They put it in a way where it makes it sound very deceptive. Again, going on, quote, all grace-thirsty children of God have found their consolation in the preaching of the gospel within God's kingdom. Side note, again, when they mean the gospel, they mean specifically receiving the forgiveness of sins through the blessing and the office of the keys. That's what they mean when they say the gospel. 
they mean the gospel, they mean the preaching and the reception of the forgiveness of sins through someone in the church, through a minister, through the forgiveness of sins. That's what they believe the gospel is. And then they say, within God's kingdom. So it confirms it. Within their church, when you receive the forgiveness of sins, or as they say the gospel, within their congregation or the God's kingdom, as they mean. That's what they, that's what they mean, just to clarify. Jesus encourages us, going on, Jesus encourages us in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Whosoever has been called into this kingdom and has received the gospel of the forgiveness of sins in the holy name and precious blood of Jesus has found the inward assurance that they are now one with the body of Christ and are acceptable to heaven. They have been overjoyed to find the kingdom of God and the fellowship of God's children. Again, you can probably see what they're trying to say here. You know, it has to be their specific church and it has to be their specific gospel that they're preaching that believe all believe um, all sins forgiven in Jesus' name and precious blood. That's their gospel and their kingdom of God is their congregation. And again, like I said, they're making it sound as if God, the people of God are his kingdom, which is what they mean. But God's kingdom is heaven, not his people or not us. God says this plainly and makes sure to says that the earth specifically is his footstool. Isaiah 66, 1 says, thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? Matthew 5.35 Nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Again, like I said, gospel and kingdom of God means something completely different to them. But the reason I have to explain that is because the average person reading that may not understand, or not, they haven't attended this church, they're not going to understand what they mean when they actually say those two phrases, the gospel and the kingdom of God. Yes, let me just move my microphone up quickly, sorry. Yes, Jesus likened the kingdom of God to people, but he said this only during parables. For example, Matthew 21. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is in householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. First of all, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man. Okay, that's talking about God. That's not talking about his people. Which, who God is the householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. We are the laborers. He is the man of the household, the householder. Matthew 25, 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamp and went forth to meet the bridegroom. However, we can never, we cannot mistake the incidence of a, a legger, allegory for literal meaning or a parable. Jesus was making a point and not being literal. The kingdom of God is heaven, and never does the Bible make a reference that the body of Christ is the kingdom of God. That's not in the Bible. And again, a few more verses just to make sure we have, you know, it's clear what's being talked about. Mark 15, 43. I don't think I'll read every single one of these, but hopefully you'll get the point here. Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And when Jesus was speaking to the chief priests and elders in Matthew 21, 31, 
Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Mark 9, 47. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And so on and so on. You get that the kingdom of God is heaven. And in fact, we are told that while on this earth, Satan, the enemy, is the ruler here, and the earth is his kingdom. Ephesians 2.2 says, Wherein in time past ye walk, walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 4.4 In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. In John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. In John 16, 11, Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. And two more excerpts here. There is no hope or consolation of salvation outside of the kingdom of God. Whosoever has resisted the calling of our Lord Jesus Christ and stubbornly refused the cross to cross the threshold into the kingdom of God has only had a hopeless, dreadful waiting for that judgment day that is promised to come. Beginning with the eldest son, Cain, who was the first heretic, people have departed from the kingdom of God and the fellowship of God's children to establish their own churches and religions, which are more suitable to the flesh. Again, just repeating, when ministers are saying this, they mean specifically their congregations, their people, their the things that they're preaching and teaching about. And this also rings a very familiar bell. Again, it sounds and is very Catholic in nature. Quote, Indeed, there is but one universal church of the faithful, outside of which no one at all is saved. That was from Pope Innocent III. And quote, Do not hold aloof from the church, for nothing is stronger than the church. The church is thy hope, thy salvation, and thy refuge. Okay? And the Catholic Church also proclaims the same thing of, you, if you're not in the Catholic Church, you're not saved. If you're not in the First Apostolic Lutheran Church, you're not saved. Another thing is the Catholic Ten Commandments. I was born... I grew up reading the uh, Martin Luther's Small Catechism, and I have it here. The full name is Dr. Martin Luther's Small Catechism and K.G. Leinberg's Bible History. We grew up reading from this every Sunday school and learning from this every Sunday school. But come to find out that they're actually using in this, the Apostolic Lutherans are using the Catholic Ten Commandments. And they're teaching from these altered Ten Commandments, but they don't even realize, they don't know. Because the commandment number two is removed, and number ten is split into two to make up for the removal. To find the real commandments, Ten Commandments from God, in the Old Testament, it's in Exodus 21 through 17. And just, I put a few pictures up here. Um, so this is the, the catechism. So if you look closely... The second commandment is removed. That talks about not bowing down to idols or graven images. And every commandment is shifted up. 
So the second, the thou sh so looking at the second commandment here, it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. In the Bible, this is the third commandment. But the Catholic Church, they remove the second commandment because they bow down to idols and worship statues. And they shift every commandment up. So where the, the Sabbath day in the Bible is the fourth commandment, here it's the third for the Catholics. And so on and so forth. And I always... I always was, I didn't realize, but as a kid, I was always curious of why it said, thou shalt not covet twice, the ninth and the tenth commandment in the catechism that we grew up with. But now, I know, of course, because they just took covet, thou shalt not covet, and split it into two because it was a long commandment. So the ninth now says, to fill up the gap for the removed second commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, and then the tenth goes on, and thou shalt not covet a neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is a neighbor's. So that is, in the Bible, that is just the tenth commandment. You know, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant. But in the first epistle of Lutheran Church's catechism's commandments and the Catholic's commandments, it's split into two because, again, they removed the second commandment. And this was actually prophesied in the Bible. These changes in the law of God was prophesied to happen in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7.25, And he, speaking of the papal power, shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And the scriptures teach that this anti-Christian power is the Roman Catholic Church. And I'll link... Um, you know, I don't have time to go over a full study on it right now. I'm going to make a separate video about the Mark of the Beast and about um, the anti-Christian power, explaining how the scriptures, you know, say that it's the papacy. But I can leave a link to that study if anybody wants to look into that further. By removing the second commandment and splitting the tenth, tenth into two to cover it up and changing the Sabbath to Sunday, which I'll speak on later, later, this exactly fulfills the prophecy that this power would think to change times and laws. And let's just let, rather than, you know, let's just let the Roman Catholic Church speak for themselves. Quote, Sunday is founded not on scripture, but on tradition. And there is no scripture for the transfer of the day of rest from the last, which is the seventh, to the first day of the week. Protestants, excuse me, Protestants ought to keep their Sabbath on Saturday and thus leave Catholics in full possession of Sunday. In another quote, the Pope is the great authority and power that he can modify, explain, or interpret even divine laws. The Pope can modify divine laws since his power is not of man, but of God. And he acts as vicigerant of God upon earth. And you can see that's fulfilled perfectly with the Roman Catholic Church. I'm moving it, moving on to my testimony, kind of more of my testimony. After leaving the first Apostolic Lutheran Church, and at that time when I left, I didn't know about the fourth commandment. I didn't understand um, the truth about the fourth commandment, that Sunday is just a tradition, and it's of man, it's not of God. You know, worshiping on Sunday, that is. There was a time, like I said before, that I was not attending a church. But in the fall of 2019, I started attending a Baptist church. And this was um, Bethany Baptist Church, for those who are familiar, in Dollar Bay. I started attending that church for a while. And this, to me, was exciting. And it was new. And it was I was hearing things that I never heard before. And it was so encouraging. And I was learning more. And I was 
oh, I'm just so encouraged by what I was hearing because people like the, the pastor is actually, you know, talking about the Bible and, and saying it in a way that I could understand and resonate with. And I was, you know, it was encouraging, it was exciting. And still during this time, I never stopped digging into the Bible. I never stopped reading the scriptures. I never stopped asking for help of understanding God's word. I kept reading and reading and studying and digging. And the verse that was sticking that was sticking out to me during this time, what I was really encouraged by, Proverbs 25, 2, says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. So I was searching out a matter in my Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I was so excited just continually reading the word and getting into it and still growing and still still will be growing for you know every single day until the return of Christ. But I was just growing and learning so much. And I, you know, I start to meet Christian families in the Baptist church and just families in general. And as, you know, growing those relationships and I truly believed I was supposed to be at this Baptist church. I was, you know, at first I was, wow, this is great. You know, God led me here and I was so excited. Um, and while, but while I was uh, attending this church and I was in total, probably at this church for maybe about a half a year, a little under half a year, maybe four or five months, some somewhere in there. Actually, probably maybe half a year, more like it. And while I began attending this church, and I was hungry for God's word, I was hungry for truth. I wanted nothing but truth, the truth of the Bible, to be led by the spirit of truth. That's all I wanted. There were certain concerns that I still had, and I saw, and I read when I read the Bible, it didn't seem to match up to me. And there were certain things that I was being taught and I never really, while I was so excited, I never really got comfortable per se or settled into this Baptist church. And there is reasons why, you know, I've actually, I finally ended up leaving the Baptist church and here is why. So in the fall of 2019, for the first time, I learned about the real, true Sabbath of God's fourth commandment, which was Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, which is, you know, God's a, a, a biblical day in the Bible is sunset to sunset. It's not midnight to midnight. That's just something that man has come up with. But a biblical day is sunset to sunset. So when I first learned about the real Sabbath, which I thought was Sunday for until I learned about it, I just thought we go to church on Sunday because the Bible says remember the Sabbath day, right? I didn't even question it. I didn't dig into it. I didn't study it. I didn't think about it. And then I met a Christian family at my workplace that mentioned the Sabbath for the first time. And that was the first time I heard of it. And so what do you do when someone brings you a question? You study the scriptures, you search it out, you search out the matter, and you ask questions. You go into the Bible and you go, God, and you pray to God, please, what are you saying here? What, you know, what are you, um, I want to know the truth. Like, is this, is this something? Is this, this guy is just you know, crazy. Why is he mentioning the Sabbath on Saturday? I don't get it. Doesn't make sense. Um, this guy's must be crazy. But I wanted to know the truth. I wanted to dig in the Bible. I wanted to understand what God was saying, not what my own preference was. Not what because I don't want to. Who wants to really? Who wants to change when they're getting comfortable in something? That's kind of why I was hard a hard thing for me to leave the apostolic church is because it's so comforting. You have this fellowship and this communion and this uh, family that you're so close with, but it's comfort that you're leaving and it's a change, which is hard. But uh, my inclination, I didn't want to leave. Why would I want to leave? 
but as I studied into it with, I say, intense interest, because that's truly what it was, I was so intensely studying and focusing on what God wanted, and I just wanted the truth. I just wanted, God, please lead me where you want me. If you want me, I, I, was, I wanted to be obedient. Whatever God's word says, I want to be obedient. And so, in the spring, when I was questioning these things, in the spring of 2020, I brought these questions about the Sabbath to the pastor of my Baptist church, where I was still attending. And he didn't know how to answer them, per se. He said I had good questions and that I was touching or digging into something he did not have the answer to or he was not well-versed in. And he he kind of made it sound as if I was touching something that was either really you know sensitive and uncomfortable or uncharted territory. It, it, it was very interesting. It sounded as if he had self had questions about it and he wasn't sure how to go about it and answer my questions. So it was really interesting how that went about as well. Um, but he, you know, he, I remember him saying, you know, he's like, those are good questions. You know, those are good. And I, every time I was like, you know, I went, I would go to him after the service on Sunday I would go with my Bible and I would point to scriptures and I'd be like, well, why does it, you know, what does this mean? Like about the Sabbath specifically, why does it say this here? What is he trying, what is it trying to say? And, you know, I was asking him because I wanted to know, I was like, you know, how come it says this here? How come it says this here? How come it said, you know, so on and so forth. And then I had, um, you know, I think maybe I went this, did this three or four times. I went maybe four, I don't know, three, four, five, five times I went after after church up front to ask him about this. And then I remember um, going to the youth pastor about this, asking about the Sabbath. And I remember him saying things like, we are not under the law and quoted half of the scripture in Romans, in the book of Romans without giving context or reading the next verse. And that was interesting to me. That was like, hmm, something, why is he just reading a tiny sliver of the verse, but not reading anything else? And that's what he did. He read you are not under the law and didn't say anything else when in fact i knew this was not right and i knew that the bible said what should we say then shall we continue in sin continue to break god's law that grace may abound god forbid i knew that romans said in romans 6 1 and 2 it said <clears throat> you know we don't continue in sin just because um you know just because god has given us grace no god forbid and and I, so I came to the realization that, okay, the Sabbath is something that I have to be obedient to. The Sabbath is something that's true. It's in the Bible. It's in the Word of God. And it's on Saturday. And it's the seventh day of the week. It's not the first day. It's not Sunday. It's not tradition. It's, it's biblical. There's biblical jurisprudence for worshiping on the seventh day of the week. And it's not what we want. It's what does God say? What does God's word proclaim? What does God's word say how we should worship him? And this, what I realize is, yes, the seventh day is the Sabbath. And it is Saturday. And we should be worshiping on Saturday specifically because, again, the fourth commandment says, not because I said, no, God says. So God revealed to me, this was a huge thing. It was a I mean, it's a completely different day. He revealed to me that just like I left the first Apostolic Lutheran Church, I had to leave this church. And I also learned that while 
you know, there's other false doctrines of this Baptist church and just Christianity as a whole, modern Christianity as a whole, right? Not biblical Christianity, but the modern church, you know, whether it's Baptist or Lutheran or Methodist or um, Mennonite or Amish or Lestadian or whatever it was, um, Pentecostal, there was false doctrines that I, I realized. Things like once saved, always saved, which is predominantly Baptist, eternal life and hellfire, state of the dead, natural immortality, pagan holidays like Christmas and Easter, the secret rapture, um, the Sunday Sabbath, etc., etc. Um, so I'm just going to go through a few of those Christian doctrines, those a few false Baptist slash modern Christian doctrines, and I'm just going to use the Bible again, not me, not my opinion, but let the Bible speak for itself. So the first one, okay, I mentioned the Seventh-day Sabbath. So a false doctrine within, yes, also the Apostolic Church, but also the Baptist Church and most of the churches that are scattered upon our land today is the false Sunday Sabbath. Attending church on Sunday is simply a tradition. It's not a command of God. On March 7, 321 AD, Constantine was the first to command all to rest on the day of the sun. And just because it was from antiquity, meaning super long ago, thousands of years ago, does not mean it's holy and it's sanctified all of a sudden. It does not mean that because this was instituted so long ago that we should be keeping it. Again, the seventh day of the week is Saturday, not Sunday. Sunday is simply a it's simply a tradition that is passed down from generation to generation. And it's so ingrained and so rooted within our society and our churches that people don't even question it. And when you question it, you're going against the grain. And when you go against the grain, that's something that you shouldn't do. But God says... In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. In Luke 16, 17. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. And one tittle is like a dot above an I or the cross of a T in the letter T. So it is easier for heaven and earth to pass. Clearly, heaven and earth are still here. You know, if we look around, heaven and earth is still here. And it's easier for that to go away and to pass away than for one tittle, one dot of the law to fail. And Romans 3.31 says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Do we get rid of the law because we have faith now? Of course not. God forbid Yea, we establish the law. When speaking of when Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 AD, which was 35 years after Christ had died and risen from the dead, Jerusalem was, destro was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD by Titus and his army. But during this time, Christ, warning, uh, Christ gave a warning to the Christians in Matthew chapter 24 when this would happen, this event would happen in 70 AD. Matthew 24, 20 says, But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. So he was telling Christians 35 years after, uh, you know, about you know, 30, 35 years after Christ had died and risen, to 
not, you know, pray that your flight from Jerusalem when this happens is not on the Sabbath day. And Jesus kept the Sabbath and was Lord of the Sabbath. And he is our example. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue and on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And Matthew 12, 8 says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Going on, the apostles, the Jews, and the Gentiles that became Christians kept the Sabbath, which showed the law of God written on their hearts. In Acts 13, 42 and 44. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached unto them the next Sabbath. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. In Acts 16, 13, and on the Sabbath, we went out to the city, went out of the city by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. Acts 17, 2, and Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. And lastly, in Acts 18, 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So it's not just the Jews Paul's trying to reach here. People will say, well, yeah, Paul became a Jew to the Jew and a Gentile to the Gentile and a heathen to the heathen and so on and so forth. But in that context, again, and he reasoned with the synagogue, in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. The Greeks were going to the synagogues initially for the Sabbath. They were worshiping on the Sabbath day. They were, it wasn't just the Jews. It was also the Greeks who wanted to be Christians because they knew that the law of God wasn't done away. They knew that obedience is simply a fruit of salvation. And some will say that keeping the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is legalism. And you'll hear legalism being brought up a lot among people as a some sort of, you know, whatever they, albeit good intentions or not, whatever, right? They say, oh, it's legalism. It's, you're, you're, you're legalistic without giving any scripture to back up what they're saying. But I ask you this. If the Sabbath is legalism, is it legalism to obey the sixth commandment and not murder? Is it legalism to obey the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother? Is it legalism to obey the second commandment and not have any idols or graven images? Is it legalism to obey the Eighth Commandment and not steal? Is it legalism to obey the Ninth Commandment and tell the truth and not lie? Is it legalism to obey the Tenth Commandment and not covet? And finally, is it legalism to obey the Seventh Commandment to love your wife and not commit adultery against her or lust after another woman? If I want to be obedient to the Seventh Commandment and I don't want to lust, I don't want to commit adultery, I don't want to watch porn, I, don't, I want to love my wife, I want to love my spouse. Is it legalism to do so? Because the seventh commandment commands it? Of course not. But people say it's specifically for the fourth commandment because it is a very specific, sensitive area that Satan has used for millennia, for decades, to get Christians to forget. It's the only commandment that God says to remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep holy, not forget. He says to remember. Now, of all the things that the Jews were accusing the apostles and the early church of, not once was it ever about the Sabbath no longer being a requirement. And we, plus, people, and some people will say, ah, oh, there's all these rules and regulations. No, it's simply from a place of love. 
We deal with obedience on a daily basis. For example, traffic, driving your car, putting on your blinker, a stop sign, a stop light. There's common obedient things of obedience that we deal with just in our, like just in our, when driving a car, you have to, you follow rules, you follow regulations, you follow things, laws of the road that have been put in place for your safety, that have been put in place for a purpose. You stop at a stop sign for a reason, to be safe and to look who's, if there's someone coming from the left or the right. You put on your blinker courteously to remind the person behind you or in front of you that where you're turning. You follow these things and you don't even question them. You don't, you don't say these things are they're too hard to follow. You, you don't say that, you know, stopping at a stoplight is too hard for me to follow. It's just legalistic. It's, I, can't, I can't do that. There's just rule. But no, there's a specific purpose why God has his Ten Commandments. They're, they're a law of love. It's love. It's liberty. So, moving on. I'm just going to read this story. I had just finished preaching on the subject of the Sabbath in one of my evangelistic crusades. As I stepped off the platform to greet the people as they left, three young men blocked my way in the aisle. One of them addressed me in quite a loud voice, loud enough to cause about 50 people near the front of the auditorium to stop and listen. Brother Joe, he said, we were disappointed tonight with the way you put us back under the old covenant. Don't you realize that we, were, that we are living under the new covenant now and should keep a Sunday instead of Sabbath? Instead of the Sabbath? Although most of the congregation were leaving the building, the group near the front gathered closer to hear all that the young men were saying. It was obvious that I would have would have to take the time to answer this trio's challenging question. As I suspected, they turned out to be young seminarians in training at a local Bible college. Eagerly, they held their Bibles in their hands and waited triumphantly for me to answer. Usually, I do not like to debate controversial matters in a public forum, for fear of stirring combative natures, but there seemed no way to avoid dealing with these ministerial students. Anyway, they had my path completely blocked, and the circle of listeners looked at me expectantly for some explanation. Well, well, it seems as though you have studied on the subject, the subject of the covenants quite deeply, I suggested. Oh yes, they affirmed. We know all about the covenants. Good, I replied. You undoubtedly know when the old covenant was instituted. One of them spoke up quickly. It was started at Mount Sinai. And how was it ratified? I asked. Without a moment's hesitation, one of them answered, by the sprinkling of the blood of an ox. Very good, I commented. And how was the new covenant ratified? All three chorused the answer, by the blood of Jesus on the cross. I commended the young men for their knowledge of the scriptures and asked them to read me two verses out of their, out of their own Bibles. Hebrews nine sixteen and 17. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity by the, be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Note, ask any lawyer and they will tell you that a person's last will and testament can be changed at any time while the person is alive. However, once the person is dead, their last will and testament is ironclad and unchangeable. Once Christ died on the cross, his new testament became sealed permanently, permanently by his blood and is unable to be changed. Basically, if Christ didn't change the Sabbath before he died, it can never be changed. 
Galatians 3.15 Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be a man's covenant, yet it be confirmed. No man disannulleth or addeth thereto. They responded eagerly to the invitation and read the verses, commenting on each one after reading. We agree that the new covenant did not go into into effect until after Christ died, and nothing can be added or taken away after he ratified it on the cross. The spokesman for the group asserted. All three nodded their heads emphatically over this point. I said, Now, you must answer two more questions for me. Here's the first one. And you, did, and you must think carefully to give me the correct answer. When did Sunday keeping begin? There is a moment of shocking silence, shocked silence, and then another, and another. The boys looked at each other, and then down at their feet, and then back at me. I gently prodded them for the answer. Surely you can tell me the answer to this question. You have known all the others and have answered them correctly. When and why do you think people began keeping Sunday? Finally, one of them said, We keep Sunday in honor of the resurrection of Jesus. I said, Then I must ask you my last question. How could Sunday keeping be part of the new covenant? You just stated that nothing could be added after the death of Christ. He died on Friday and was resurrected on Sunday. If Sunday was added after Jesus died, it could never be a part of the new covenant, could it? The three young men shuffled their feet, looked helplessly around, and one of them said, We'll study into that and talk to you later. Then they fled from the auditorium as fast as they could. I can assure you also that they never returned to talk further about the covenants. And then another, so another important important point comes up about the Sabbath. Well, what about ignorance? What about those in the past? What about previous Christians who did not truly know about the Sabbath day or other truths for that matter? God made our hearts and he alone can see and know the human heart. He alone can see whether or not someone is truly ignorant that if they have no idea or if they are willingly choosing to not follow his commandments. 1 Samuel 16:7 says, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. We are not to trust our own hearts and feelings. We are to trust in God's word alone. Jeremiah 17:9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So when you hear people say, trust your heart, follow your heart, that's not what God's word says. God says to follow his word. Psalm 119.205 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We're supposed to be, we, we are supposed to be following the Bible which is the word of God, and it lightens our path. It shows us where to walk, where what to choose, what decisions to make, who to marry, who to, where to move, where to live. All of these questions in life, we can bring them to God and go to his word and ask for wisdom, ask for an answer, ask for discernment, and he will lead us and guide us in every single thing. Every single thing. Sorry, one Psalm 119 should be 105, not 205. I just noticed that said 205. Sorry about that. If someone did not truly know about the fourth commandment and they didn't have light or understand or understanding to accept or reject it, God sees that they do not know in their heart. God judges righteous judgment. If they never knew, how can judge judge them according to if they have known? 
because God winks at our times of ignorance. Acts 17.30, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere, all men everywhere to repent. So when you truly don't know the Sabbath is Saturday from sundown, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, if you truly don't know and you're going to church on Sunday, God's not going to judge you. He's not. He knows that you don't know. He sees your heart. He knows that you're worshiping God to the best of your knowledge and the best of your ability, which is precious to him. It's precious to him that he knows, even though, even though there's something that's wrong in his word, he still sees past that because you truly don't know about it. Just like in the Bible where Jesus, when he speaks to the people, he says, before he came, you had a cloak for sin. But now once, he's, now once he spoke, now once the gospel is preached and Jesus was speaking, that cloak, there is no more cloak for sin. There is no more covering for your sin. Now you're aware of God's commandments. Now you're aware of the Sabbath. Now you're aware of certain false doctrines and you're expected to follow after the light. Your ex- God expects you, once you are no longer ignorant, to follow after the light that has been given. But before you have that light, he can't, you're not expected to because you're ignorant. You do not know. Now, another false doctrine in the Baptist church is the doctrine of once saved, always saved, or always, once under grace, always under grace. Meaning, once you come to Christ, once you're born again, you can never fall away from the faith. You can never lose that salvation. But this doctrine is unbiblical. It, people will take a couple verses here and there to say that this is true. However, I'm, there are so many verses, but I'm just, I just picked a handful. Second Peter 2.20, uh, chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, states, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse within, with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them to, to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire." If this was the case, if once saved, always saved was true, the angels would be still saved. Satan would still be in heaven. The demons would still, there wouldn't be an issue. They'd still be in heaven. They'd still be saved. However, this is not true. One third of the angels sinned against God's law. They followed Satan and followed his, his influence, his pride of his heart. And they were cast to the earth as a result of their disobedience, as a result of their sin. They were not kept in heaven because once they were created, once they knew God exists, once they believed, once they were saved in heaven, they weren't, they're not still in heaven. No, they were cast to the earth because of their sin. Because they, by following after the wicked one, who was before called Lucifer in heaven, his angel name, but now called Satan, they broke God's law, they sinned against God, and therefore, as a result, God cast them down. Second Peter 2.4 says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. 
and Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Adversaries. This verse is not talking about if we make if we happen to make a mistake when we are born again Christian. This is someone who willingly turns completely from the truth, blaspheming God. The whole, all, everything, the whole nine, whole nine yards is falling after Satan becomes a Satanist. This is not someone who, who makes a mistake and confesses and repents of that sin as a Christian. This is different. But if we sin willfully, if we follow after we have received the knowledge of the truth and walked in it. God says that there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful looking of judgment. Now, in Revelation 3, 4, it says that we can be blotted out from the book of life. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name of the book of, out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels, implying that your name can be blot, blotted out of the book of life. And Ezekiel 3, 20 says, again, we read this verse earlier, but it applies very much so. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he hath done, shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at thine hand. And Psalm 125.3 For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Iniquity is known sin. Iniquity is willingly sinning. Luke 9, 62. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Hebrews 6, 4-6. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made man, uh, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Now the danger with this doctrine is is it's preaching a peace and safety message, basically. It's the dangerous thinking you're completely fine you're good you're everything you know you don't have to worry about being you know you don't have to worry about being obedient you don't have to worry about sinning you don't have to worry about be, you know following god's word because i'm saved i mean it doesn't matter if i'm saved if once i'm saved i'm always saved and i can never fall from grace like satan he clearly fell from grace if i'm if i you know if i'm saved and i'm always good what what why would i have to well would I have to pay attention to God's word? Why would I have to obey God, what he says? It creates a false peace and a dangerous position for those who believe this doctrine. Moving on. Another thing that um, was a false, false understanding, you know, false teaching in the Baptist church was the misunderstanding of who is Israel. Many, many people whether it's Baptist church or, who, you know, regardless of who it is, will say that Israel, the nation Israel itself, we as Christians are not Israel, but we're, we're the dispensation of the Christian church and the nation of Israel. Those are completely two different, 
two different things, which is true, but it's half it's half correct. Right? The the literal nation of Israel are not the people of God anymore because they rejected Christ. They rejected the Savior when they crucified him on the cross. They proved themselves, as Paul says, unworthy of eternal life. They judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, as Paul waxed bold, it says in Acts 13, right? Um, and he said, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. God prophesied in Genesis 49.10 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, who is Christ, shall come, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And Hosea 2.23 says, And I will sow unto me, sow unto her, sorry, let me restart that. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Speaking of the Gentiles. The Gentiles received the gospel and are and are and were and are partakers of the new covenant in Christ. This happened in first with Peter and Cornelius in Acts ten. And in Matthew twenty one forty three it says, Therefore say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. In Acts thirteen forty six, then Paul oh, I was getting ahead of myself. I didn't forgot I put this verse in here. In Acts 13.46, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye have put it from you and judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And Jeremiah 31.33, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt which my covenant they break. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Speaking of Gentiles, anybody who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. And again, fulfilled in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." For I will be merciful un to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And Hebrews 10, um, you know, reiterates the same thing. But the Bible actually says, yes, the nation, the literal nation of Israel is no longer God's people. However, Christians are God's people. So spiritually, we are Jews. We are Jews inwardly. We are Israel spiritually. Romans 2, 28 and 29 says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Okay, as Christians, circumcision is that of the heart. We are Jews inwardly, 
not literal, you know, the literal seed of, of the Jews were spiritual Israel. Romans 9, 6 through 8. Not as though the word of God hath taken on effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall they seem be called, that is, they which are the children of flesh, these are not the children of God, speaking of the Jews, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Galatians 3, 26-29 For ye all... For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The Bible says that the children of the flesh are not the children of God. Like I said, literal Israel, the Jews, the Jewish nation. If you are Christ's, you are counted as Israel. You are the children of God, and the promises of God are yours in Christ. As 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. Okay, so as Christians... We are not the literal nation Israel, no, but we are Israel spiritually. We are God's people. The Baptist Church also, along with modern Christendom, believes in a doctrine called the natural immortality of the soul. In other words, most believe or think that when a Christian dies, they go immediately to heaven and the soul is naturally immortal. Or, you know, immediately to heaven or to hell, right? That's what they believe. However, this is unbiblical. What does the Bible say happens when we die? Psalm 6, 5. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? Psalm 146, 4. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. Isaiah 38, 18. For the grave cannot praise thee. Death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. Ecclesiastes 9, 5, 6, and 10. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for their memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Verse 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Psalm 13.3 uh, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Psalm 115.17 The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. John 11.11-14.23-24 11, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of his sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus, then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. In verse 23 and 24, Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
I know there's many, many verses on this subject, but again, I just chose a handful. I mean, we I could go on and on, but chose a handful, so I'm not here for, you know, super long. I know it's quite a long video already, but um, going on, John 5, 28 and 29, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, and they that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Again, um, there is re two resurrections. Okay, when we die, we go, we lie in the grave, and we await a resurrection. Either when Christ returns, the resurrection of life, or the resurrection of the wicked, the resurrection of damnation. Job fourteen twelve. So man lieth down and riseth not till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. And so, I guess, um, the Christians are resurrected at Christ's coming. They don't go to heaven immediately when they die. They're resurrected from the grave at Christ's coming. And uh, going on, Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory, which is heaven. And finally, the final verse I picked on this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and 18. <clears throat> and 18. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So it's pretty clear, the dead are just that, they're dead. They're not thinking, they're not, um, they can't, they have no thoughts, they, have, they don't realize what's happening, they're basically asleep. They have no perception, they're not conscious, conscious, they, they don't realize they're dead, they're just that, they're dead. They're awaiting the resurrection, one of the resurrections, okay? They don't go to heaven, they don't go to hell immediately, and they don't go to purgatory. They're awaiting the resurrection of life or death. If they're Christians, they're waiting the resurrection of life. But how did... Um, the lie that we go to heaven immediately when dying gets started. Well, it comes from uninspired punctuation. For example, here is two situations of punctuation. A woman without her man is nothing. And a woman without her man is nothing. Punctuation is quite very important. Now read this, Luke twenty three forty three, And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now, this has created countless contradictions and 
issues that pop up in the scriptures because this comma has been placed in the wrong place. The comma should be after today and read it again with the comma in the right place and that it then matches with the testimony of the scriptures. It matches from Genesis to Revelation what the Bible says about what happens when we die. It's not a contradiction. It's just the one simple comma has been placed in the wrong place. This is how it should read. Luke 23, 43. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee today, Shalt thou be with me in paradise? Where the comma is placed, like I said, it creates many contradictions. Here are just a few, just only three of them, which they're more. But it, again, besides the fact that it goes against the testimony of the scriptures, here's three more. Jesus died on on Friday. The thief on the cross died the next day after sunset because they left him upon the cross. But Jesus they brought down before sunset. So it couldn't have been the day that day they were both in heaven. He would have lied to the thief on the cross. Point number two, Jesus died and was in the grave for three days. He was not in heaven nor risen from the dead. He wasn't in heaven that day or the next day even or the day after that because he was still in the grave and the third day he finally rose from the dead. In point three, Jesus told Mary in John chapter 20 verse 17, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended. Again, Jesus was not in heaven yet and even when he did arise from the grave, it was not. It was still a while until he ascended to heaven. It wasn't immediately that he rose from the grave and immediately ascended to heaven. He would have lied to Mary again. And so that's one of the areas of where the lie got started. When people, people saw this verse and like, Verily I say unto thee today, shalt thou be with me in paradise. They see that, but they don't see the other scriptures that talk about what happens when we die and they get confused and they mix it up. Now, one of the final points is the re- one of the other reasons I left the First Apostolic and the Baptist Church was this as well, is God calls us to come out of Babylon. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth that Revelation chapter 17 verse 5 speaks of, is the great whore that sitteth upon many waters and sits upon a scarlet-colored beast, And this is in Revelation 17, uh, verse 1, 3, and 5. As the Bible says that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. And this is in 2 Peter 1, 20. We can't put our own opinion, our own interpretation, our own thoughts, our own definitions on what the Bible says. We must let the Bible and the Bible alone define itself for us. The Bible defines itself perfectly with Scripture, with comparing Scripture to Scripture. Not us saying, oh, I think that means this, or, oh, I think that should mean this. No, the Bible tells us exactly what symbols are. So, according to the Bible, in the Bible only, a beast in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, is a kingdom or a nation. And we find this in Daniel 7, 23. It says, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom. And in 1715, it defines what waters are. The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And as for the symbol of a whore in the scriptures, an obedient group of God's people are are called virgins, as Paul says. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 11.2, I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And every, most people know 
that the church is often called the bride of Christ. That's pretty well known and a common thing. And um, it's called that, we're called the bride of Christ in Revelation twice as well. And and this name was also in Amos called the Virgin of Israel. In Amos 5.2, God calls the church the Virgin of Israel. However, when Israel was unfaithful, she was called a whore and or a harlot, you know, committing abominations and committing sins and following after other gods. God said to them, Thou hast played the, har- the whore also with the Assyrians. Thou hast played the harlot, as Ezekiel 16.28 says. And likewise, when a Christian church turns from God, she is also called a whore and a harlot. Thus, because of this, the Bible says, Babylon is the symbol of for an apostate Christian church. This is why God calls his people to leave them and to come out of them. We are, God calls us as one, one of his final messages to the world, to Christendom, to churches, to Christians, to everybody, is to come out of her. And these who come out of her are they which are not defiled with women which in Bible prophecy are churches. So these people who come out are the people who are not defiled by their churches, for they are virgins, because those who choose to come out of these um, fallen churches, they are those which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And you can find that in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4. And again, like I said, God calls us to come out and to leave the fallen apostate churches that scatter the land, whether it's Lutheran or Baptist or Methodist or Amish or Mennonite or um, Pentecostal or what have you, non-denominational, what have you. God calls us to come out of those corrupt churches that have corrupt doctrines, who have become the habitation of devils, who have become every un- a cage of unclean spirit. And this is found in Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 to 2 and 4. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon is fallen and is fallen and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. In verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. And we see this, God is pleading with his people. His people are those who come out of the fallen churches, who come out of false doctrines, who've come out of modern Christendom, this false system of religion. He calls us to come out and to be separate. God says to be ye separate in the Bible, in Corinthians. Yeah, Judah and Jerusalem are symbolically Christians. Who this can also be applied. Yes, it applied to Judah and Jerusalem specifically in Jeremiah's day, but it can also symbolically apply to Christians. Will be destroyed because of sins and iniquities. And Jeremiah 7.34 says, Then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, which is Christ, and the voice of the bride. For the land shall be desolate, Jeremiah 25.10 says, Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the candle. Now, when God speaks of Babylon, 
He gives them certain characters, certain things that he mentions, he gives us, he reveals who Babylon is in Revelation 18. He, get, he lays it out in the Bible for us to understand. He tells us who Babylon is so we can come out, so we can leave them. And he says that they've fallen from what they used, they used to be. They used to be pure. They used to be holy. They used to be followers of Christ. They used to do things that were right in the sight of God. And this is how God describes. Okay, so, and in Revelation, in, in Bible prophecy, candlesticks equal churches. Symbolically, they mean churches. The church's lights have gone out because of sins and iniquities. Revelation one twenty says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. In Matthew 5, 14 and 16, speaking of the church, God's, you know, the disciples, God's followers, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on an hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a basket, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And we know that the bridegroom and the bride, we know what those are symbols are, right? John 3.29, And he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which is John the Baptist speaking, which standeth and heareth him, rejoicing greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And Matthew 25, 10 and 11 says, And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came, <clears throat> afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And the word Babylon itself means confusion, and it's a mixing of truth with error. It's a mingling and a combining of paganism and Christian doctrines. It's confusion. You can't have the truth, the truth of God, you know, you can't mix truth with error. There is no lie that's of the truth, it says in 1 John. I believe it's 1 John. There's no lie that can be of the truth. It's either truth or there's error. And truth. You can't have 90% truth and 10% error. The, the, the leaven leavens the whole lump. That leaven of um, that leaven of doctrine that ruins the rest of the lump. It ruins the rest of the it it makes it corrupt. You, you need to have pure doctrine. You know, you need to have pure principles of the of a Christian. You can't have a 10% or 5% error. And it's just confusing. You're just mingling and mixing things. And that's why going through all these characteristics, Revelation 18 reveals these things to us. It says, And the voice of harpers and musicians and pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman in whatsoever craft he shall be, he be, shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all of thee, at all in thee. For the merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. So it's pretty easy to see that the Christian church has fallen because of sins. 
the Christian church has fallen because of iniquities, from false doctrines, for rejecting God's law, for rejecting and falling and teaching and proclaiming lies that come from Satan, doctrines that are doctrines of demons. But when we bring these things up, what do Christians say? Again, Jeremiah, this is in his day, but we can use the scriptures. We know that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And this applies symbolically to Christians in the last day. Jeremiah 69 through 12 says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease out of this place in your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And it shall come to pass, and thou shalt show this people all these words, and they shall say unto thee, Wherefore hath the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then shalt thou say unto them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, and have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. And ye have done worse than your fathers. For behold, ye walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. So we brought to view the Christian church and the mother, the mother of harlots, the whore of Babylon is the Roman Catholic church that has daughters that follow their, her, her doctrines. And they're all grouped together as this phrase. They're called Babylon, these fallen churches. God calls the church, the modern Christian church, Babylon. And he calls us to come, he calls last day Christians to come out from the corrupt system of Christendom, to come out from the corrupt system of Christianity or proclaim Christianity when it's not Christianity. It's Babylon, it's confusion. He calls us to come out from among them and be separate. And those who do God's will will enter heaven. Matthew 7, 20 and 23 Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity." And iniquity is lawlessness, is violation of the law. It's committing sin. Where these people thought, because they were casting out demons, because they thought they knew God, they said, Lord, Lord, these are Christians. They're thinking they're doing wonderful works in God's name. They're thinking they're doing all these things for God. And yet God's, yet Jesus says unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, those who are working iniquity, who are sinning willfully, who are breaking God's law willfully. So, now what? Now that we know these things, the point is to heed God's messages, to heed, to listen to the Bible, to heed the final messages of God's mercy and to leave Babylon, which consists, like I said before, of the mother church, the Roman Catholic church, who is the whore of Babylon, whose mystery Babylon is written on her forehead, and her daughter churches, who are the fallen Protestant and evangelicals, evangelical churches who follow after her and to follow the light that God has given in his precious word and in his precious word please 
warn others, tell others, share this video, comment, leave a comment, leave um, whatever. Let scripture, at the end of the day, let scripture alone be your final authority. Don't let your pastor or your minister or your teacher or your, don't let your pastor be your final authority. Let the word of God alone be your final authority. And we read the word of God with a Never read the Bible without praying and asking for God's Spirit to lead you before. Please always pray before reading your Bible. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for understanding that His Holy Spirit would help you to understand. And let Scripture be your final authority. Let the Jesus be your final. Let the rock, let everything land upon the foundation of Scripture and upon the rock, which is Christ. And Hebrews 3.15 says, while it is said today, while it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. I know there's going to be some people that hear this, that listen to this, that see this, and they're going to harden their hearts, and they're going to go, nope, what he's saying is not right, or nope, I'm not following that, or whatever, what have you, whatever it may be. Please let the Bible be your final authority. Listen to the still small voice. Do not, if you hear his voice today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Become born again, become changed, fall after God's word. Because Jesus is coming so soon and he wants us. And he's pressed this upon me so heavily because he wants his people, he wants everybody to get ready and to prepare my heart, to prepare your heart, to prepare everybody's heart. So they are ready for what's coming. So they are ready for his second coming. And they're ready for the prophecies leading up to a second coming. He's preparing us to meet our God. He's preparing us as a people, as a church, as believers, to meet our King Jesus. But we have to be ready. We have to heed his final messages. And part of his word, part of being obedient to his Bible is following what the Bible says and leaving Babylon and leaving the fallen churches because of the sins, because of the false doctrine, because it's a cage of unclean, unclean, every unclean and hateful bird. It's a cage of nothing but false teachings and doctrines and things that aren't true, mixing truth with a little bit of truth in there, but yet it has error. It's mixing. And you have, if you have any questions, if you have any comments or concerns or prayer requests or just a question about the Sabbath or a question about being born again or, or baptism or a question about, you know, more about my testimony, like more details about how I was born and raised and how, how that looked, like you want even more detail or whatever it may be, please, please let me know. Feel free to reach out to me. I would love to talk with you and... We can learn together. We can grow together. Please let me know. My I'll leave, I left my email here, biblicalandfound at gmail.com. Um, just please reach out to me, whether it's Facebook or YouTube. I'll, please leave comments and um, whatever you need, prayer requests, please let me know. I'm available with anything you need, and I'm here as a brother in Christ to help you with whatever that may be. So please, um, please reach out if that's, you know, if you're pressed to do so, please reach out to me. And I'm also going to be making another video about um, the Mark of the Beast and what the Mark of the Beast is. 
and how what the what the Bible says about that as well. So stay tuned for that. I will be posting that hopefully soon, whenever God leads me to post that as well. So again, thanks for listening. Please um, let the Bible and the Bible alone be your final authority and trust in God and his word. He never fails us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He's such a kind father to us. And please just trust in him. Time is so short. God, Jesus is coming back so soon. Just prepare your heart before him. He loves you and he cares for you deeply. And with that, thanks for listening. I'll see you in the next video. All right, God bless.